BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Here's the trailer belonging to John Robinson. Shock and dismay was written all over John Robinson's face. Neighbors would look on as deputies would lead John out of his home to a squad car to be taken away to the Johnson County Adult Detention Center. Friday, July 2nd, 2000, John Robinson would be charged with sexual assault and theft. But we know, and investigators had a hunch, that John had done way more than what he was originally charged with. Now, with search warrant in hand, it was up to investigators to find proof. These are the crimes that made your skin crawl. The missing faces you just couldn't get out of your head. The questions that never got answered. Missing and murdered in the Midwest dives deep into these unforgettable cases, solved and unsolved. A warning to all those who tune in, these episodes cover mature and sometimes graphic content. I'm your host, Toria Wilson. That summer afternoon, detectives Don Lehman, Dan Owsley, and Mike Lowther would be tasked to enter the Robinson home and collect whatever evidence they could. They would start in John's office. For the next five hours, these detectives cataloged and carried out things like forged certificates, blank pieces of stationery with the signature from Lisa Stacy, envelopes addressed to family members of Lisa, Receipts from the roadway in, the one where Lisa stayed, social security forms for Debbie and Sheila Faith, email addresses of the victims he would speak with, credit cards and forms with some of his aliases like James Turner, documents from Hydroglow with Beverly Bonner's name on him. The bigger things taken out of John's home, his five computers and all the floppy disks he used with them, the computers holding 91,000 files that may or may not be evidence. Computer forensic specialist Mike Jacobson would be assigned to the task of going through all of these files. Files that had been deleted could be retrieved thanks to a sort of autopsy on all of Robinson's devices. Now, while all this activity is happening in and around the Robinson home, you have to remember they live in a mobile home park, which was being operated by Nancy Robinson, John's wife. She saw the commotion happening, but assumed it was one of the tenants being picked up for something small. And it came quite as a shock that officers would then approach her office and inform her that her husband was being held at the detention center for sexual battery. The officers were then asking her a lot of personal questions about her own sex life with John, including the discussion about BDSM websites. Nancy said she knew her husband was on these sites But when confronted about it, he said he was just looking around the internet. And that was the end of that. Nancy would not only be confronted by officers, but sometime later would be bombarded in her office by reporters. 
it wouldn't take long for Nancy to leave her job and the park itself and never return. And as the commotion continued at the park, some of the detectives would also leave and make a trip to the Needmore storage facility to deliver another search warrant for the locker John rented. Once the door swung open, investigators would find a series of collections, trophies of such of the dead women John interacted with. And that included Suzette Troughton. Her belongings consisted of her social security, birth certificate, passport application, and her signature on 30 pieces of stationery with 40 addresses to her family members. A slave contract, the video the two made of them, pictures, Suzette's journals, a jewelry box, a Mickey Mouse watch, I mean, it goes on. Isabella Luwicka, her driver's license and Purdue University ID were found. Her slave contract with Robinson, documents for a 1987 Pontiac Bonneville, photographs of the young women lying nude on green and maroon bedding, the ones she brought with her to Kansas City. The sex toys that were stolen from Vicki Newfield were also at the storage facility as well, along with dozens of other toys and sexual equipment just out in the open. It would be late into the night that investigators would dig around the storage facility and the Robinson home. But this wasn't the end, and it wasn't the last location officers searched. Saturday, July 3rd, a blazing hot summer day. Investigators from half a dozen departments packed up and headed towards the 16 and a half acre farm that Robinson owned as well. Some would walk the entire property searching for clues, shovels in hand. Others would photograph and videotape the buildings and vehicles on site. Some would follow cadaver dogs. Some would dive into snake infested ponds. And that came after officers shot at some of the snakes for divers to get in. The entire time, helicopters flew overhead to get a layout shot of the property. Pretty big operation. As the morning wore on and the temperatures rose, the entire search seemed like a wash. Can you just imagine all this time, this effort, people sweating themselves half to death, trying to find the one thing that will really nail John Robinson? And they weren't finding anything at the farm. That is, until a cadaver dog picked up a scent. Just before one o'clock that afternoon, the dog would walk near a storage shed on the property and would sit down right in front of these big barrels hidden amongst the weeds. The dog was sniffing the air very aggressively, an indicator that it found something. There were some small blue plastic barrels and two 85-gallon bright yellow metal barrels. Sergeant Rick Roth from the Lexina Police Department would be the first human to approach these barrels. He would ease one of the big yellow barrels out from the brush, then rolled it out into a clearing. When he stood it back up, a reddish liquid would begin oozing out from the lid. The cadaver dog would put its paws on the top of the barrel. Sergeant Roth would go back into the brush and grab the second barrel. At this time, a very strong scent would begin to seep out of the barrel. A distinctive smell one that veteran officers knew too well, the smell of death. Johnson County Sheriff Deputy Harold Hughes would approach one of the barrels with a pair of pliers and would slowly begin to pry the moldy lid away. And as it began to tear away from the leaf and the mold, the scent grew stronger, so strong it knocked Deputy Hughes damn near off his feet. 
but he would regroup, approaching this opened barrel to find what appeared to be a decomposing body, a purplish and bloated body that would be sitting face down in a foot of liquid. Holy shit. Deputy Hughes would do the same thing to the other yellow barrel to find another body. Inside this one though, a pillow sitting on top of the remains. It looked as though this one had been in the barrel longer than the first. Deputies would reseal both of these and the barrels themselves would be processed for fingerprints. Then it would be loaded and shipped off to the morgue in Shawnee County, Kansas. Now, if these episodes weren't graphic enough, this gets kind of gross, just a warning. The coroner would reopen the barrel and slide the body onto a plastic bag on the floor and begin his examination. It was a woman with long, dark hair whose genitals and nipples were pierced and were connected by a metal chain. A piece of cloth blindfolded the body. The left side of the woman's head had a severe injury which the coroner would determine was consistent with a hammer blow, especially because of the circular punch out of her skull. She would have no defensive wounds either. The coroner would estimate this woman had been dead between a couple of months to a year. The second barrel contained another woman with matted hair and a sheer black shirt. The fluid she was encased in would hold some of the woman's fingernails and pieces of duct tape. She also had no defensive wounds and two blows to her head that were also consistent with a hammer. This woman had been dead between six months and two years, the coroner would estimate. Both bodies would be fingerprinted. A rib bone would also be removed for DNA testing. Body number one would later be identified through dental records. It was Suzette Troughton, the Michigan woman who met John through the internet. Body number two, also identified through dental records, proved to be Isabella Lewicka, the Polish college student, whose gothic appearance would keep John close in person, but distance himself in public. Now that these autopsies were done, police would have even more work on their hands, but they had a better idea as to what to look for, finding blood in the barn, trailer, and shed on his property. The discoveries of these bodies and the blood would be able to produce even more search warrants for investigators, and that included the rented locker at the Stormore in Missouri. Now, there's some complications that come with this. Everything that investigators had found so far was in Kansas. If more evidence was found in this locker, it would not only add to just how complex this case was already becoming, but add a new state and a new jurisdiction as well. But it wouldn't take much to convince the DA in Cass County to get on board. June 5th was a Monday. Investigators had already spent four days sifting through John's home and farm. Now a fleet of investigators were beelining to the locker facility. They would roll up on locker E2, cut the padlock, and raise the door. And right there, front and center, three other barrels. Loretta Mattingly ran this facility. She saw the cops coming saw them when they opened the locker. She says she never saw John Robinson bring the barrels in, but believes it happened around 1993 or 1994. She's been quoted by saying, all I know is they've been dead a long time. And you could tell that they had been there for a long time. Some of the barrels were leaking acids. 
so much so that it was eating right through the barrel. Those were wrapped in thick plastic and held together by duct tape. Cat litter had also been spread around the base of these barrels in an awful attempt to try to cover up the smell. One barrel away from the other two had written on the top of it, rendered pork fat. The fear that the fluids would continue to leak out, police would send one of their officers to purchase several kid pools, which the barrels would be put in before being loaded and sent to the medical examiner's office. Barrel number one, a fully dressed corpse, wearing size 14 pants, a tweed jacket, a blouse, and a scarf. A watch with the time stopped at 1.22. No defense wounds, but another woman with a blow to the head, possibly caused by a hammer. Barrel number two, another dead woman, fully clothed with jeans and a t-shirt that read California, a state of mind. Fractures were found on the back and the side of her head. Her jaw had been broken, again consistent with a hammer blow. But this one, and only one, would have defensive wounds as she sustained a broken right forearm. Barrel number three, a younger female, found upside down, dressed in green knit pants, green shirt, and one sock. The body would have some sort of degenerative condition, a misshapen pelvis, and severe blows to the head about the size of a golf ball. Dental records would prove the first barrel held Beverly Bonner, the librarian from the prison in which John served at, who picked up her whole life to be with the man she had fallen in love with. The second and third barrels in such decomposing condition required a ton of additional testing, but it would be determined it was Debbie and Sheila Faith the mother and daughter who were promised help financially with all the bills that it took to take care of Debbie. Two bodies in Kansas, three bodies in Missouri. John Robinson's bond would be immediately raised to $5 million. The media would swarm these Midwest towns. The New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today would write about the nation, potentially the world's first internet serial killer. As reporters would try to talk to neighbors, friends, and family about John Robinson, police were trying to track down the women who were alive, those who had contact with him. That would turn up Alicia Cox, the strong, independent woman who was damn near killed by Robinson after she woke him up the morning she was supposed to die. Another woman, Barbara Sandre, was also contacted. She was living in Toronto by this time. She had known John for decades, always on and off, and the last time they were communicating, John was planning on moving to Canada to be with her. Unbeknownst to her at the time, she was his escape plan, his way out of the shitstorm that eventually came crashing down on him. If you remember, there are three other women that John is linked to in their disappearance, Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, and Lisa Stasi. If you thought this case was hard as it is, I think the other tragic part is that these women still, to this day, have not been found. There was also the kidnapping of the infant of Lisa Stasi, Tiffany. Whatever happened to her? Well, DNA would prove that the baby John Robinson handed off to his younger brother and sister-in-law was indeed her. It was the district attorney from Kansas, Paul Morrison, that had to tell Don and Helen Robinson where Tiffany had come from. By this time, she was 15 years old. 
Morrison was also the one who had to meet with Tiffany's biological father and Lisa's husband, Carl Stasi, to tell him what happened. DNA would prove he was the father. Instead of fighting for custody or anything like that, all Carl wanted was to meet his daughter. An FBI agent would be the one to release a statement on behalf of Don and Helen Robinson. It began that they were betrayed. The rest stated in part that they loved their daughter, they never hid that she was adopted, and while they didn't know her birth parents, they were willing to help her find any information. Nancy Robinson and her four children would also release a statement. And I want to read the whole thing because it's really quite fascinating. It reads, quote, We as a family have followed the events of the last week in horror and dismay along with each of you. As each day has passed, the surreal events have built into a narrative that is almost beyond comprehension. While we do not discount the information that has and continued to come to light, we do not know the person whom we have read and heard about on TV. John Robinson is a loving and caring husband and father. We wait with each of you for the cloud of allegations and innuendos to be clear, revealing at last the facts, end quote. Isn't that just mind-blowing? The person who went to church who would referee volleyball games, fix up ponds, this person who attend all the birthdays and holiday parties. Hell, he was hosting a cookout with neighbors and friends on Memorial Day weekend, just days before his arrest. And from what I can tell, he never showed anger or aggression towards his children or even his wife. But you sort of have to look at other serial killers in history. It's been referenced before, but John Wayne Gacy is the best comparison because he was also a business and family man. So when it came to light, he had, what, 30 bodies under his house and garage, and all that was completely off guard to all those who knew him. Okay, anyways, I digress. Now, Robinson had been able to get himself out of a bind in the past, but this? Man, he needed a miracle and a half to wiggle his way out of this one. John was facing three counts of murder in Kansas, three in Missouri, nearly 60 counts of fraud and forgery, aggravated interference with the parental custody of Lisa Stasi's child, the sexual assault on Jeannie Milliron and Vicki Newfield, as well as the theft of her sex toys. If he would be convicted in Kansas on the three deaths alone, he could be the first person executed since 1965. So John was arrested in early June of 2000 in Kansas he would declare that he had no money for legal counsel. And the team that would represent him would have his prelim hearing pushed back from October to November, eventually happening in February of 2001. Because of this insanely highly publicized case, those who would enter the courtroom had to be screened. Those in the media would receive passes and go through metal detectors. Armed deputies were on standby. The preliminary hearing would outline John's crimes, from the victims who were still alive, the family members of those who were dead, and even Nancy Robinson herself, who couldn't bear to look at her husband of 36 years. Especially after her testimony, when people would get up on the stand and talk about sex and bondage, toys, electric this and whipping that, the courtroom was filled with this awkward feeling. Everyone was uncomfortable. And kind of like a kid in a high school sex ed class that was blushing and jokes to try to ease their discomfort. After some delays, the trial would be set for January 14, 2002. But that date would come and go. 
Robinson kept firing his legal team. He'd go through, I think, three or four of them until his full trial. The defense, when there was one, would continuously argue that there was not enough time and too many documents to sift through as the impending trial was creeping up on them. Some of Robinson's lawyers tried to throw out the evidence, such as the two barrels found on his farm's property, the things found in his storage. They didn't want any of the pictures shown and tried to suppress all the BDSM stuff. Overall, more than 100 notions would be filed and argued over. But in the end, the judge wasn't having any of it and allowed all this stuff and more to be presented. He would also set a new trial date, September 16th, 2002. And again, the defense who, I will say, are respected lawyers and have great reputations at this time. They wanted another delay, just two months ahead of that date. But the judge would say no once again. They were moving forward with this date. Just days before the jury selection would begin in late August of that year, the lawyers threatened to walk if they didn't get their delay. But it was Robinson who had thrown out his previous defense teams. The state had provided Robinson's team with enough time to examine the evidence and potential witnesses. The lawyers aren't idiots. The judge would order no more delays, ordered the lawyers to stay put. He meant it when he said the trial would begin September 16th. Not a day before, not a day later. It would take 15 days to seat a jury of seven women and five men and five alternatives. Man, they were put through the ringer. 500 people were asked if they could stomach the sexual content of this side of the case, let alone if they could handle deciding the life and death fate of another human being. They were also under a strict gag order. So were the lawyers and anyone who was set to testify. The trial itself would begin October 7th, 2002. We obviously know what the prosecution side is. For the defense, they would argue that others may have been involved, as some of the evidence wasn't linked to Robinson. But the overall tone wasn't that they were trying to get John Robinson acquitted, but to spare his life. Now, I don't want to really get into the details of the trial itself. But I just wanted to point out a couple of key details that you never expect in a courtroom, especially of a case of this magnitude. First and foremost, there was a major argument on the first and second day of testimony over emails. Their origin, can the document be changed? What about a duplicate? Is this even real evidence? Ah, that just blows my mind. Because it wasn't that long ago this argument was being duped out in a courtroom. Outside the courtroom on day three, I just, I love this. A radio personality was handing out t-shirts that said, John E. Robinson, trial 2002. Roll out the barrels. And in small print underneath, it said, of evidence. <laughs> what? It reminds me of the shirts that were passed out at Ted Bundy's execution that said, burn Bundy burn. The judge in Robinson's case was none too pleased. A defining moment in the trial, though, was when Nancy Robinson took the stand. When she walked into court that day, she was dressed very professionally, but her demeanor was very deflated. When discussing the whereabouts of John, from the perspective of Nancy on that day that Suzette Troughton was killed, Nancy told investigators he was home around noon that day. But on the stand, she gave a more detailed account explaining that he was spotted taking his grandchildren to school, was home for lunch, 
And when she came home that evening, John was there cooking dinner. For Paul Morrison, he was stunned into silence. How did she forget all these key facts? This wasn't just a defining moment in the trial, but also for Nancy and John's marriage. Despite the lies, the affairs, the deadly schemes he had done over the past three decades, she was going to stand by his side. I'm guessing she really took the whole in sickness and in health thing in her wedding vows very seriously. She wanted to keep John alive. If Nancy's testimony, the t-shirts, the arguments over emails wasn't enough fun, there was a key piece of evidence that would have everyone on the edge of their seats with their hands over their eyes watching through the creases of their fingers. The prosecution would enter in the sex tape that Robinson and Suzette created in that hotel room a 39-minute film. For the prosecution, they only wanted to show a snippet, nine minutes. But the defense would raise hell over this. We want the whole damn thing. And their reasoning, an edited version was misleading. So anyone over the age of 18 was kicked out of the courtroom. And for nearly the next hour, the jury, the lawyers, the families of victims, John's family, and just curious onlookers in the crowd would get to watch this. The courtroom would damn near transform into one of those seedy adult entertainment places you see off the interstate. And while, yeah, some people shut their eyes, you could still hear everything. And when the tape wrapped, it was that surreal moment of seeing Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. While this made it sort of a freak show, the jury would get a reminder why they were there in the first place with what the prosecution would do next. The 85-gallon, bright yellow barrels that the bodies were held in. They were rolled up to the front of the courtroom, feet away from John Robinson. I mean, you look at those photos. You have this extremely bland courtroom, one that you could step into literally anywhere in the country, in contrast to these round coffins for these women. It was striking, and it's something that no one could look away from. They would be rolled into court, not once, but twice. The second time came as closing arguments were being given. As Morrison wrapped up the prosecution side of the case, Morrison started out by saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, that there weren't a lot of terms to describe John Robinson, but one that came close was sinister. Sinister in that we've got rotting bodies in the barrels. As he said that line, he tapped on the top of the bright yellow bin. The echo from the hollowness practically rang. He would do it again, saying John made his victims, but more specifically in his words, Suzette, valueless. He killed her and put her in a barrel like a piece of valueless trash. And every time he would talk about John's victims, he would go back to the barrels and tap them again and let the ringing break the silence of the room. The defense would try to claim that none of the cases were connected by a common scheme. They were unanswered questions. Not all the killings were premeditated. And in the end, said if the jury had any doubt, they should find him not guilty. The defense even tried to victim shame for the sadomasochism thing. And that riled up Paul Morrison. Getting back up in front of the jury, he made it a point that there was no evidence 
that there was anyone else who could have done this. I, I loved this line, quote, in John Robinson's world, when he's done with you, he throws you away. These are trash barrels for John Robinson and tombs for his victims, end quote. On October 29th, 2002, John Robinson would be found guilty. And after taking a day, the jury would come back for the sentencing phase and try to determine if John Robinson should live or die in the state of Kansas. The state would call no witnesses, but the defense would, and that included once again Nancy Robinson. She tried to make it a point that this person, the one found guilty, was not the man she knew. She tried to soften the hearts of the jury, saying that one of their grandchildren visited John in jail, gave them a big hug, and said, Papa, orange is not your color. It was at that moment we saw John Robinson show some sort of emotion, other than stoic, as he hung his head and cried. Paul Morrison would also get his turn with Nancy again and asked her if she had any reason, any reason at all to leave her husband now. And the line of questioning actually angered her, saying, I don't know. But Morrison could see it in her eyes that that hit a nerve, and he immediately backed off. It would take nearly two days, and after a mishap over one of the jurors reading a Bible verse, the jurors were unanimous. John Robinson would die at the hands of the state. Jurors would later come out and say that if John's children might have spoken in court, they could have been persuaded. A year later, in Missouri, the prosecutor would try to work out a deal with Robinson. If he would lead investigators to the bodies of Lisa Stasi, Paula Godfried, and Catherine Clampett. But if he would have done that, it could have been used against him in Kansas. So he refused. But it's still clear to this day the only way to those women's bodies was if Robinson cooperated. So in a very weird deal, Robinson would acknowledge that only the prosecutor had enough evidence to convict him of capital murder. And while, yes, it's technically a guilty plea, it missed any specific acceptance of responsibility. Robinson is 75 years old and remains on death row today. And here's some crazy tidbits to wrap up this three-part series. In 2005, Nancy filed for divorce. And I say to her, hallelujah. She cited incompatibility and irreconcilable differences after 41 years of marriage. In 2006, Lisa Stasi's daughter, now known as Heather Robinson, filed a civil suit against the hospital Truman Medical Center and a social worker named Karen Gaddis, claiming she was the one who told Robinson about Lisa and her baby as Robinson hunted for unwed mothers with white babies. No word on how much she got in that case, but she would also win a $5 billion lawsuit against Robinson himself. But it's not money she wants. In 2019, Heather founded the Lisa Stasi Effect, which is an organization and a podcast to answer questions about her mother's disappearance. She wants to find the remains of her mother, Lisa Stasi, answer the questions about what happened to her, and finally bury her in her final resting place, a grave that's marked, yet empty. As long as John Robinson is alive though, those closest to the victims who have never been found can only hold on to hope that something, anything, will make Robinson just tell them where they are. But John is a con man, 
a man who has controlled or has tried to control every woman in his life. And right now he's doing just that over Lisa Stasi, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett, long after their final breaths. Let's just hope they're found before his last breath. Thank you so much for listening to John Robinson part one, two, and three. Uh, I just have to say real quick, I want to thank Chris Ketz, uh, the dad of Jonathan Ketz from WQAD, my station. Uh, he definitely helped me out with sending me some information and some sound and story stuff uh, from what their station did. He is in the Kansas City, Missouri area, so thank you to him. I also want to thank, he'll probably never hear this, but I'm going to say it anyways, John Douglas. He is a former FBI agent. You probably heard of his name if you love the show like Mindhunters. Uh, he wrote a book called Anyone You Want Me To Be, and it's all about the internet's first serial killer, which is John Robinson. So the book itself is fantastic. Please check it out. It's part of my uh, Bloody Good Book Club, so take that a listen. There's a couple other books. Uh, if you want to check out WQAD.com, go to the podcast tab. You can find out some other books that I've been uh, reading and it's really good so a lot more cases like this are going to be coming they just take a whole long time to piece together i mean this is a big book and a lot of information obviously a lot of victims so uh and definitely check out the lisa stasi effect podcast uh heather robinson uh she's an inspiration i saw her story on abc 2020 as technically the sole survivor of john robinson and she honestly just blows me away with her strength and resilience after the craziest news coming out at age 15. I, I couldn't even imagine. So check her out. Check out all this stuff that I'm spewing right now and, and everything else. So a lot more episodes like this to come, a lot more episodes in general. So keep listening. Thank you so much. Uh, see you soon. Episodes for Missing and Murdered in the Midwest are researched, written, and recorded by Toria Wilson. Production is by Elise Edens and Hannah Rodriguez. Thank you so, so much for listening in and tune in to the next episode coming soon.